You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The COVID-19 virus pandemic has killed thousands across the world. In the heartland of capitalism, America has become the most stark picture of the willingness of casting working people and frontline responders to the fires of profit over health. In Australia, science and sense has generally prevailed, but the push to use the pandemic to further the ongoing destruction of working conditions and wages and workers' rights under the cover of mutual support, getting through a hard time, saving the economy, is the song of the day. The question should be asked, why are the poorest, least powerful in the equation, being asked to take the bread from their mouths for the big end of town? When does the big end of town start to show why they are necessary and start to carry the load? Our feature today focuses on higher education. The battleground has been set between the NTEU Fight Back campaign and what has been called the National Tertiary Education's Politics of Compromise with University Australia and the Federal Government, despite angry responses from its membership. We look into the No Concessions campaign and why reframing the mainstream mantra of making the workers pay for the pandemic is common sense. But first, some union news. Jack Mundy, that great working class warrior, died on May the 10th, aged 90. Jack rose to prominence during the 1970s Green Bands in Sydney, which halted the destruction of the city's built and natural environmental heritage by rapacious developers and their supporters in government. As developers circled inner-city areas, even proposing a freeway through Glebe and an Olympic stadium in Centennial Park, Mr Mundy launched a fierce fight to protect green space and history. Jack and the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation stood up to the forces of capital and spoke truth to power, refusing to work on these sites. As one person has written on his passing... The movement that Jack was part of tamed a brutal industry, ending an era of constant casualties. There were huge fights just to get shitters and showers. Many of the green bands were about protecting working class homes. The BLF also fought hard against racism in the industry and to allow women on the job. Kelly's Bush get so much attention because it was the BLF's first cross-class alliance a bunch of unskilled labourers working with doctors' wives. Wendy Bacon, that shining light of independent journalism, writes, So much more that can and will be said, 
But I was so sad to wake up today to hear that our old friend and comrade Jack Mundy had died. I will always remember Jack as a very warm and inspiring man who introduced us to new and exciting ideas in the 1970s. The key was that workers have a right to be part of decisions that shape the environment. Jack will be most remembered as a leader of the Green Band movement, but just as importantly, he continued to stand up for social justice until the end of his life at 90 years of age. Jack was an open-minded person who had an unusual capacity to communicate with people from all backgrounds. Just a few years ago, he was down at the rocks speaking out to save the serious building for low-cost housing. It was a very hot day, and by then he was pretty deaf. I could see it was tough for him. But Jack still, he, he spoke in his characteristic way that got to the nub of the issue. Jack was a communist and later a supporter of the New South Wales Greens. Jack was a genuine national hero who led the builders' labourers in the use of green bands that saved parts of Sydney. But it should never be forgotten that Jack was vilified by sections of the media in the 1960s and 70s. He stood down from his position as Secretary BLF, as was consistent with his beliefs and union policies. But he continued as an activist and was later elected as a councillor on the city of Sydney. He remained a member of the CFMEU and continued to promote green bands as a tool in environmental struggles in Parramatta, the Rocks and other places. If you want to know more about this truly amazing person, go to the Commons Social Change Library. We will leave this item with a last word from Jack Mundy himself. Vale, Jack Mundy. Generally in Sydney, we're questioning the overdevelopment that was taking place. But, of course, the government took the action, well, all development was good. We were told, of course, by the Askin government, your job is to build buildings, so get in and build them, you know. We said, yeah, we want to build buildings, but we want to build socially useful buildings, environmentally sound buildings. We want to build safe buildings for workers, and we want to build good buildings for the public at large. It was common knowledge right throughout that period that Askin was in bed with the developers, uh, in a, an open slather. He made it clear when he spoke to us that he was on their side. Any building considered worthy of preservation, we would put a green band on it. Well, in all, there was over 50 bands imposed, 40 or 50 bands, I just forget the number now. We never imposed bands willy-nilly. We only always imposed them on after we had public meetings and then opening up a discussion on where the band should be. It was very democratic in the way, and I think it was this that, that won us so much support amongst the public at large. To think that uh, all of Centennial Park was to be destroyed to build a giant sports stadium. When you look back on that, who would now suggest that Centennial Park be flattened? People rose up in anger and said, we're not going to do it. It wasn't just the builders' labourers. We had widespread action amongst the public at large. And it was that sort of support that won the day and stopped them from smashing the union altogether. In a win for workers, the Fair Work Commission has refused to waive overtime rates and set shifts for part-timers in the fast food industry due to a lack of evidence that major franchisors like McDonald's are struggling during the pandemic. 
A full bench heard by President Justice Ian Ross on Tuesday knocked back employers' urgent bid for changes to the Fast Food Award despite backing from the Australian Council of Trade Unions and the SDA, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, who had been in a week-long negotiations with the Australian Industry Group before the hearings, instigated by a pushback by the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, RATHU. It is the first time the Commission has refused temporary flexibilities in awards to tackle the economic fallout of COVID-19. Under the current system, part-timers must get paid penalties for hours worked outside their set shifts, so that if a worker works five hours on a four-hour shift, they get one hour's overtime pay. The variation was intended to operate for three months and would have replaced strict set rosters for part-timers with minimum weekly hours and removed overtime pay for extra hours apparently to ensure work in the face of reduced customer demand. Justice Ross said AI Group needed to provide evidence of the impact of the coronavirus restrictions on large fast food industries and, perhaps more importantly, how the proposed flexibilities would assist in maintaining employment. AI Group had argued the changes filled a regulatory gap for large businesses that suffered a downturn but were ineligible for JobKeeper and the workplace flexibilities that accompany it. In particular, it said McDonald's corporate stores were not eligible for JobKeeper because the franchise had more than a billion dollars in revenue and could not meet the 50% drop in revenue required for the wage subsidy. RAFU National Secretary Josh Cullinan argued the changes were an outrageous attack on workers' rights and intended to benefit billion-dollar multinationals without a shred of evidence that they were suffering. RAFU said the Changes appeared intended primarily for Domino's and McDonald's, given that other fast food franchises were covered by enterprise agreements. Those two entities are multi-billion dollar bigamoths, more than capable of managing their affairs without the flexibilities the applicant and its consenters seek to foist upon low-paid workers, Rafu's submission said. The union argued there is no regulatory gap as JobKeeper recognised larger businesses had greater capacity to withstand the economic impact of the coronavirus. For many employers, the gap is that they don't have the suite of tools to exploit workers which they would like to have. Further, Rafu said there is no material evidence or anecdote identifying how casualising part-time work will ensure extra employees are able to be retained in employment. In fact, the desecuritising and casualising work will mean employees lose their employment. Evidence provided by a McDonald's employee said that without set shifts, I will only be rostered late-night maintenance shifts or three-hour late-night shifts. The employee said McDonald's food delivery sales were still strong and that his store broke a store lunch sales record a week ago. The AI group will be given the opportunity to resubmit material to the Commission to support their arguments. You're on Stick Together, worker stories, union news and social justice issues. The COVID-19 pandemic saw the closing of the Australian borders and the shutting down of the lucrative overseas student trade propping up Australia's higher education sector. 
As the federal government withdrew funding to the universities, the overseas student intake has increased over time to 30%. With the closure of our borders, Universities Australia has calculated around a $5 billion shortfall with a projected loss of 21,000 jobs over the higher education sector. Unknown to its membership, the National Executive of the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, has been in negotiations with University Australia and the federal government about the types of concessions, variations to the enterprise agreement, including salary-based savings, arguing these negotiations set the stage for the union playing a central role in regulating at about trigger points individual universities could initiate cost-saving measures and what cost-saving measures they may use. The NTEU National Executive may not have been ready for the anger from its membership when the news arrived in members' emails about the NTEU's position going forward, just waiting for a rubber stamp from its membership, but perhaps they should have. I spoke to Thomas McLaughlin, a lawyer with recent experience of working on the issue of a case around a long-term academic staff member being sidelined because of being designated as a casual, although having worked for decades for the institution. It tends to bring up the lack of good faith that universities have shown to employees and why negotiating with a a personification of mammon may not be in the best interests of the workers. The large number, large proportion of academic staff who have been designated as casuals up till now, and with my direct experience, academics who have been on a rolling annual contract and described as casuals, they're in the firing line to be to be booted. It is the case that at University of Sydney, for instance, I'm directly aware that there have been staff at one of their schools that have been on rolling contracts for decades. At law and in employment law, a common English phrase applies. A rose is a rose by any other name. A permanent employee is still a permanent employee even if you call them a casual when they're not. There's been a bit of movement in the, the political economy and in the case decisions in the federal court about this. As recently as a case in 2019 called Burner, B-I-R-N-E-R versus Aircraft Turnaround Engineering, it was found that a person who was designated as a casual remained a casual and wasn't entitled to further entitlements under the National Employment Standards, that that is, things like redundancy payment and notice of of uh, terminations. That's a bit of a setback for all those people who think that they're permanent and they're uh, described as casual. But actually, that burner case didn't overrule another really critical case called Workpack versus Skeen in 2018. Now, Workpack is an, a labour hire company, and they had. Um, an employee, Skeen, who said, I'm not a casual, I'm a permanent, you owe me more entitlements on being terminated. In 2018, the full federal court said, yes, uh, Mr. Sitt remains a permanent, even though you described him as a casual, and he's, he's owed all these extra entitlements and, and you need to pay up. What is the guiding um, rules for casual and permanent? A casual is someone who has no firm commitment um, from the employer to the employee about future work, they have irregular work patterns, they have lack of continuity, intermittency of work, unpredictable work, uncertainty as to the period of work. 
Now, you can see in the case of an academic that they're working part-time, say, 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week, week in, week out, month in, month out, according to the course guideline and the, and the schedule for the academic year, and it rolls over at the summer vacation into the next year, same deal. Might be a bit of a shift of the, um, the scheduling, but it's, it's predictable work. There's, it looks like the annual rollover contract is a formality unless there's something very unusual that might have happened in, in terms of a restructure or, or you know, something like um, uh, a C-19 virus um, turning up. As I say, at law, uh, a rose is a rose by any other, any other name. A permanent employee is a permanent employee, whether you call them something else. I would imagine that if, um, if a union member signs up to variations of an enterprise bargaining agreement or an employer union agreement, which reduces their entitlements because of uh, an incredible intervention in the labour and in the economy being this uh, health emergency, they agree to sign up to that. I imagine that would be sort of like a, a waiving of their legal entitlements by consent. I think employees, particularly people who are wrongly characterised as casuals and are actually permanent, they need to think very carefully about that. Do, do they think that the health emergency and the impact on the economy and on their industry sector uh, justifies the loss of their legal and financial rights at law, which are there to protect, to give them extra rights if they lose their job, whether they lose their job because of COVID-19 virus or for some other reason. There, there are plenty of other reasons why industries, workplaces have to downsize, restructures, you know, they get bought out by somebody else who wants to asset strip or something. I think what I'd be concerned about is, say, for instance, at the University of Sydney, one of the G8 sandstone universities, they proudly announced that they've raised a billion dollars in philanthropic donations, leveraging the social goodwill that they've got with their alumni and the social capital that's been built on the on the shoulders and on the back of um, the social fabric of New South Wales for 100 or 150 years, that's quite a lot of finance that they and assets that they've got, which really are pub public assets. They're, they're public assets under the, the University of Sydney statute. They're going to need those staff again when things uh, improve. And... Um, uh, you know, I think there's a real argument that the university can afford as a cost of business to keep paying their staff at um, all their entitlements without discount in times of hardship. Um, otherwise, what is their business? I mean, if it's not if it's not the academic staff, what is their business? You're listening to Stick Together, union news, worker stories, social justice issues. We are looking at this situation that NTEU members find themselves in with the upcoming vote to allow their national executive to negotiate away elements of their EBA during the COVID-19 pandemic. I spoke to Liam Ward from RMIT in Melbourne about the hashtag No Concessions campaign, which has mushroomed around the country in response to the national framework proposed by the NTEU national executive. There's been a groundswell of uh, anger amongst members on two fronts, I think. 
the first thing is a, a general sense of outrage at being kept in the dark, that these secret negotiations have been happening since mid-March, as far as I know, possibly earlier, and that we only found out about them in mid-April, and that there's been no, you know, no attempt uh, to actually involve rank and file members or even branch committees uh, in these negotiations. Uh, but more fundamentally, you know, beneath that, this sort of simmering rage about the willingness with which the union leadership preparing to give away our hard-won conditions. You know, we've fought hard as a many rounds of enterprise bargaining and many battles just on the ground uh, to win and enforce. And people, you know, understandably don't want to give that up without a fight. After years and years and years of cuts to education budgets and, you know, attacks on university staff that, that yeah, we've, been managed, we've managed to win improvements in our, in our working lives here. Uh, and yet now we're expected just to give it all away the first hurdle. The universities in Australia are a highly casualised area and a lot of people have already been stood down and have lost their jobs. Uh, and also uh, mm. in restructurings, universities like Melbourne University and One Fell Swoop got rid of 500 non-academic uh, support staff. The implication mm. is that... Uh, uh, the staff are supposed to be once again fitting into a smaller box while the management mm. is doing little in order to fulfil that income shortfall. There is actually a lot of wealth in the sector and I mean some, some universities struggle more than others but um, some, of the, some of these attacks on staff have been uh, announced at universities that are literally the richest in the country. For example, University of Melbourne and University of Sydney have both announced attacks on staff recently and have both indicated they are considering uh, variations to the enterprise agreements. These are institutions sitting on multi-billion dollar pots of gold. RMIT, for example, where I work, has a net value of over $4 billion. If it was listed on the stock exchange, it would be in the top 100 companies in Australia. I mean, it is, it is big business. As soon as there's a slight downturn in revenue, they turn around and, and they've stacked hundreds of casual staff in recent weeks. All of this crisis provides an opportunity for university managements, you know, who are ruthless, right, this presents an opportunity for them to try to ram through uh, agendas that they've been unable to ram through previously. Massive increases in workloads, massive shedding of staff, massive cuts to uh, paying conditions. Our workloads have just massively escalated, massively escalated. We started this semester, you know, in one kind of world, and then by halfway through semester, we were suddenly in a whole different world. You know, there was travel bans, campuses were closed. I mean, if we go back to the early part of the semester, we were part of the, you know, we were part of the force that was campaigning to shut down the campuses for our own safety. Mm. You know, we wanted it to happen. But when it did eventually happen, the immediate consequence, of course, is that well, the work still has to be done. So we had to all, you know, thousands and thousands of staff across this country had to suddenly translate material that was designed to be delivered in a classroom uh, to being delivered online. And, and that, that has escalated our workloads I mean, that's one of the other issues we have at the moment, that we're all doing massive amounts of extra work. And it's worth saying, too, academics don't have any kind of penalty rates or overtime. So this is all just unpaid free labor for the universities. And at the same time as that's going on, you know, the universities are making us do that with one hand. And then with the other hand, they're stacking casuals. Uh, there is a fight back against uh, what's being put forward, and there'll have to be a national vote. What is the fight back doing? A number of us at various campuses kicked off the NTU fight back uh, within sort of 24 hours of getting that first notification from the National General Secretary. Uh, so as I mentioned, they emailed all members 
saying that, you know, telling, informing us publicly, 30,000 members across the country, that they were prepared to, on our behalf, give away uh, paying conditions. Um, and we immediately uh, sort of leapt on that. Our first response actually was to, you know, to try to inform rank and file members that what was happening was not inevitable, that we could resist. Uh, and so the first thing we did was to, to try to organise at some of the stronger branches uh, to have branch meetings where motions could be passed condemning the ending strategy. And the first one to do that was Sydney University the day after that general secretary's email, where they had an overwhelming majority. There was 119 people in this meeting, and they voted 117 to two uh, to, to censure the NE and to call for a total reset of their strategy in the crisis. And then that pattern has been replicated uh, around the country. Um, the three biggest branches in the country, University of Sydney, University of Melbourne, and RMIT University, have all had large members meetings, about 200 members at the RMIT meeting, uh, that, that all voted overwhelmingly along the same lines to condemn the NE and to call for a total reset, uh, and, and also to commit ourselves to voting no to any attempt to vary our enterprise agreements. They just say there would have to be some kind of vote. Um, there might be a national vote within the union to endorse the NE's proposed you know, deal with cut pay, but there would also have to be individual ballots at each enterprise around the, the individual enterprise agreements. And so we're arguing for all staff, not even just the union members, we're arguing for all staff at those, at those institutions to vote no, to defend our enterprise agreements, whatever the cost. You know, this is our last line of defence. We need to fire all those conditions and, and cling on to them. Part of the fight back, which is uh, really important in terms of uh, having a vital union, is that um, the university sector doesn't actually have a very strong delegate or activist system. And by actually having to activate uh, membership to express themselves properly in this particular event, it gives the opportunity for building a stronger union, doesn't it? It absolutely does. That's 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 an essential point you make there, Annie, that... In the last few weeks, as we've been running out this uh, NC Fight Back Vote No uh, campaign, we've established rank-and-file committees at a number of universities across the country that have mobilised actual NTU members who probably never even been to an NTU meeting before, have been mobilised into these little kind of working group committees to try to win their workmates to the idea that you can resist and that you should resist. Uh, and so at RMIT, for example, uh, we've had... Uh, workplace meetings involving between a few dozen and even up to over a hundred uh, is a distant from the branch meeting that I mentioned earlier. It is a local workplace meetings in particular departments of the university uh, where those members have discussed or even at times voted unanimously uh, that they will not accept any attempts to undermine our enterprise agreement, even if that attempt is endorsed by the National Office of the Union. So people uh, who uh, want more information... Yeah, we have our uh, NCU Fight Back No Concessions Facebook. Uh, we're also on Twitter with the same handle, NCU Fight Back. Um, and you can sign up to our mailing list there. With, uh, we started an online petition uh, that now has around 1,000 signatures from NTU members across the country. Sign up to be involved in the Vote No campaign on your local campus because if we're going to have any hope of winning these ballots in a climate of fear that's saying, you know, you have to accept pay cuts or you will lose your jobs, we have to convince thousands of people that it's worth voting no. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. 
and a union is only as strong as its members. And until next time, stick together and stay safe. We will go out with a song for the passing of Jack Mundy, Bill Berry singing across the western suburbs. Oh, me name, it is friend In Sydney born and bred For the inner city used to be me own boys But it's caused me heart to grieve For I've got to take my leave And across the western suburbs I must roam, boys Under concrete and glass Sydney's disappearing fast It's all gone for profit and for plunder Though we really want to stay They keep driving us away And across the western suburbs We must wander Oh, where is me pub? Me little local pub Where we used to have a drink When we were dry boys Now you can't get in the door For there's carpet on the floor And you won't be served a beer Without a tie, boys Under concrete and glass Sydney's disappearing fast It's all gone for profit and for plunder Though we really want to stay They keep driving us away And across the western suburbs We must wander Oh, where is me house? Me little terrace house It's all gone for profit and for plunder For the wreckers of the town Just come up and knocked it down And across the western suburbs We must wander Under concrete and glass Sydney's disappearing fast You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.